0: Listen to Radio Maria, Christian voice in your home. We're now presenting the show, Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shoman. Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made in Judaism, in the Catholic Church, and her sacraments. And today I want to talk about some of those promises that God made in the Old Testament to the Jews, and what they have to do with us today. Um, And I'm going to launch into that in about 60 seconds. But first let me just say that if uh, anybody is interested in listening to archived uh, past shows of this show, um, it is uh, eventually possible to do so on Radio Maria, but they are a little bit behind in in posting the uh, archived shows. But they are posted um, uh, somewhat more, in a somewhat more timely fashion uh, via my website, SalvationIsFromTheJews.com. If you go to SalvationIsFromTheJews.com, you can find the Radio Maria archives of my show on that website. And I also put them on a podcast, which you can find from any podcast engine. If you look for my name, Roy Showman S-C-H-O-E-M-A-N. Uh, Or or you can find how to find the podcast by going to my website, com. Now, on to today's show. I only learned very recently, like in the last couple of weeks, about a very interesting um, explanation of biblical prophecy that came from a Messianic Jewish rabbi named Jonathan Kahn in his new book called The Oracle. And I looked into it. And I thought it was worth talking about today. Uh, he draws some very kind of compelling parallels between Old Testament prophecies and the structure of uh, sacramental Judaism and the what's going on today in the Middle East with the return of the Jews to Israel, the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, and even going up to what... Uh, president trump has done in the last two years in returning the rather um, moving the u.s embassy in israel to jerusalem and officially recognizing jerusalem as the legitimate capital of israel so i want to go through some of that it's intensely jewish in its structure and um you know there's a whole range of how literally one takes Old Testament prophecy. And the tendency today is to kind of think of it as kind of like a dreamy language with like vague pictures of things which may relate to one thing or may relate to another thing. But there has been a long tradition um, in the Catholic Church until the last couple of centuries, or maybe even less in the Catholic Church until the last perhaps century, um, to look at the old testament prophecies extremely literally and that that um tendency that attitude still continues today to a somewhat greater extent in messianic judaism and in some of the protestant denominations so that's where this analysis comes from so launching into it and everything that i'm doing today or almost everything i'm doing today is drawn from jonathan kahn that's spelled c-a-h-n's book uh, the oracle and some talks he's given also so i don't pretend to any originality to 99 percent of what i'm doing today now the first step in understanding these biblical prophecies being fulfilled with what's going on today with Israel, is to understand sort of two principles within Judaism. One is the concept of the Jubilee year, which appears in the Old Testament, where God sets up this system where every 50th year, the land returns to its original owner, and the original owners return to the land. Um, This was done in part because The Jewish people were tribes. The tribes were in geographic areas. And uh, people who owned land periodically would be forced to sell it for one reason or another, for the money or whatever. But God wanted the tribes to maintain their geographic identity on that parcel of land which was given to the tribe. And one way to do that was to establish a jubilee year where whatever land transactions had taken place in the last 50 years the land would be returned to its original owner. Now, um, the uh, instruction about that appears in uh, Leviticus 25. Um, So let me just briefly read the um, passage where God commands the institution of the Jubilee year. And you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be to you forty nine years. Then you shall send abroad the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for year excuse me, a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his family. For it is a Jubilee it shall be holy to you. In the year, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So that is the institution of the concept of the Jubilee year. Um, And um, notice also the association between the Jubilee year and the uh, blowing of the trumpet, because that will appear later. Now... The other uh, principle that I want to introduce before launching into the timeline and events is the concept of the weekly uh, Parsha. Uh, The English pronunciation is Parsha. The, The Hebrew pronunciation is closer to Parasha, but basically it's much like the Catholic cycle of readings throughout the year where on every Sunday there is an ordained gospel reading for that Sunday and an ordained epistle or Old Testament reading for that Sunday um, that predates the Catholic Church. It's the case in Judaism, where every week, for every week of the year, there is a predetermined, preordained um, reading from what's called the Haftorah, which is essentially the prophets, and one from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And it's the same reading for the same week, year after year after year after year, century after century after century. So, for instance, on the 15th week of the year, it will be a certain passage, let's say, from Numbers. And every year, the 15th week of that year, will be the same passage from the Book of Numbers. So those are the two concepts I want to introduce, the Jubilee year and the weekly Parsha, or reading. Now, having said all of that, let's start with um, uh, 1867, which was a jubilee year, and I'm going to use it as the beginning of the cycle of jubilee years associated with the founding of the State of Israel. Um, This sounds a little bit odd, but bear with me for a moment. So what happened in 1867? Uh, Mark Twain visits Israel and writes a book called Innocence Abroad, which became a bestseller, actually his bestseller for his whole life, even though he also wrote Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and so forth, that we know better today. But he visited Israel. He took a pilgrimage throughout Israel, and he described what he saw there. And it was actually um, an introduction to the, I don't want to say the Western world, but the English-speaking world of the state of the land of Israel, at that time because it came shortly after the introduction of the steamboat and it was the steamboat which made it relatively straightforward and easy for people to voyage long distances over the sea and go to Israel. So pilgrimage to Israel in modern times really began in the 1860s with the introduction of the steamboat and Mark Twain's uh, description of it was Um, uh, was kind of an introduction into the Western consciousness of what things looked like in the state of Israel. Now, let me begin by reading uh, some passages from Mark Twain's book, The Innocents Abroad, which describes what Israel um, looked like when he traveled through it. Rags, wretchedness, poverty and dirt, lepers cripples the blind, Um, To see the numbers of maimed, malformed, and diseased humanity that throng these places. The whole land is brimstone and salt, all desolate and unpeopled. Miles of desolate country. The far-reaching desolation, the waste of a limitless desolation. All its land is... Excuse me. All... um Excuse me. That was all Mark Twain. Um, let me start that over. Um, the okay, the passages which come from Mark Twain. I, excuse me, my eyes skipped a line here. Um, the rags, wretchedness, poverty, and dirt line came from Mark Twain. Uh, all desolate and unpeopled, miles of desolate country, the far-reaching desolation, the waste of limitless desolation. That's Mark Twain. Um, it is a scorching, arid, repulsive solitude. Such roasting heat, such oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. Nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death. Um, Then continuing with Mark Twain, one may ride ten miles hereabouts and not see ten human beings, these unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness, that never, never do shake the glare from their harsh outlines. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for thirty miles in either direction. The valleys are unsightly deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation, a desert paved with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun, this blistering, naked, treeless land." Um, No sprig of grass is visible. So that is... um, uh, Oh, and then the final words of his description. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? So, everything I just read is from mark twain's eighteen sixty seven account of what he saw when he traveled through um Israel, which was then known as Palestine. Now, let me read what the um, um what Deuteronomy prophesies for what the land of Israel would become. So, beginning with Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 22. And in the generation to come, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, would say when they see the afflictions of that land, and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick. Notice, I'm going to interrupt myself that the prophecy says the foreigner who comes from a far land now this i don't know what you call it prophetic interpretation suggests that the foreigner who comes from a far land is in fact mark twain in his description the foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the land has made it sick quote the whole land brimstone and salt a burnt out waste unsown and growing nothing where no grass can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. What means the heat of this great anger? It is because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their forefathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as at this day. Now, so um, one can look at the specific verses of Mark Twain and the specific verses of this passage and see very, very direct uh, echoes and sometimes even the, the um, use of the same words. So um, this um, uh, okay the comparison uh, uh, Mark Twain's account is extremely parallel to the account in Deuteronomy 29 now should um, should Mark Twain have been the um, no let me just go on here uh, I apologize for, for um, the complexity of what I'm doing here Um, There is another event in 1867, which is also extremely suggestive of it being the inauguration of the cycle of Jubilee years that led to the return of Jews to their promised homeland. And that is in 1867, uh, Charles Warren, a British officer in the Royal Engineers, um, at the time um, the uh, Palestine was part of the um, Ottoman Empire. This British officer in the Royal Engineers was sent to Israel to measure Jerusalem, beginning with the Temple Mount. Uh, He began with measuring the biblical foundations of the Temple Mount and biblical Jerusalem, and from there began the process of surveying the whole land of Palestine. And then when he returned to England, the same British officer, Charles Warren, wrote a book called the Land of Promise, which prophesied, uh, discussed the return of Jews in the future to Palestine, to the Promised Land, and described the desert blossoming under their irrigation and agriculture, and so forth. Now, why should this measuring Jerusalem be interesting in association with the biblical prophecy of the return of the Jews to um, the Holy Land? Because, in fact, Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, has a prophecy of the return of the Jews to the Holy Land, which begins and is centered on the act of measuring um, the same thing that Charles Warren did in 1867. So let me read that passage from the book of Zechariah. I'll begin in uh, Zechariah 1, um, verse 12. Um, Uh, uh, here it is. Okay. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have had this indignation these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the um, angel who talked with me. So the angel said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Therefore, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Remember the measuring line, like Charles Warren in 1867. Cry again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So we have this return to Jerusalem, Oh, I'll just begin, I'll read a little bit further. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its breadth and what is its length. And behold, the angel with talk, who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of men in it. Uh, For I will be to her a wall of fire around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within her. Ho, ho, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, says the Lord. Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, And I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. End of the passage from Zechariah. So here we have the prophecy, which has always been associated with um, the coming of the Messiah, which we think of as the second coming, of the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, Which begins, the process begins with the measuring of Jerusalem, like Charles Warren did in 1867. Note that this passage has that line flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. Now, if you draw a line on the globe directly north from Jerusalem, where do you end up? You end up in Moscow, you end up in Russia. And there was a huge, of course, immigration of Russian Jews, emigration I should say, of Russian Jews to the land of Israel. So people who look at biblical prophecy sometimes think the reference to the Jews who have disappeared into the far north and returned to Jerusalem is actually a reference to the return of the Jews from Russia to Jerusalem. In any case, um, so here we have this prophecy of Zechariah that has the measuring line at the center of it, uh, inaugurating the return of Jews to Jerusalem. We have 1867, Charles Warren beginning the measuring of Jerusalem. We have the, um, the stranger from a faraway land describing Jerusalem in um, Deuteronomy. And we have, in 1867, um, Mark Twain, a stranger from a far land, describing Jerusalem the Holy Land in exactly the same terms as Deuteronomy 29. Now, when we began this show, remember I mentioned the Parsha, the weekly reading that um, that occurs the same time every week. Now, in this line of reasoning that I was exposed to, that came from Jonathan Cahn, he is very careful to look at what the Parsha is um on the Sabbath associated with these events. And the Parsha that was read in the synagogues around the world on the Sabbath when, uh, at the conclusion of Mark Twain's visit to um, Israel, was in fact that same passage from Deuteronomy 29, the very same passage which talked about the, um, uh, let me turn it, uh, the foreigner who comes from a far land, and describes the afflictions of the land and the sicknesses with which the Lord made it sick. So, that is that little piece of the puzzle. Um, now, uh, just in, in closing the 1867 chapter, I will uh, point out that Mark Twain's um, uh, given name was Samuel Clemens. And Samuel means the Lord heard, the Lord has heard. Clemens means mercy. Um, and the Jews, of course, were crying out for 2,000 years to return to Israel and to return to Jerusalem. So there's that little echo with his name, the Lord has heard and has shown mercy. And the name Mark Twain, which, of course, was a pen name, um, is actually a reference to a measuring line. Mark Twain refers to the second mark on a measuring line which would be thrown over the side of a steamboat to see if the water was steep enough. So his his pen name also is a reference to measuring. So is this far-fetched? Maybe, but bear with me. Let me continue. I'm not, you know, um, giving this an imprimatur, but um, uh, it's certainly not beyond God's ability to create this poetry between historical events and biblical prophecy so um, let me move forward one jubilee from the 1867 which might have been the inauguration of the return of the jews to israel to 1917 fifty years right fifty years from 1867 to 1917 so and 1867 was a jubilee year and 1917 was the next, was the following Jubilee year. Did anything happen in 1917 which is relevant to the return of the Jews to um, Israel? Well, nothing could be more important than what happened in 1917 because, in fact, in 1917 was when the Balfour Declaration was issued, which was when the government of Great Britain made a formal promise to... Establish or to do everything within its power to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. It was um, issued on October 31st, 1917. Quote, His, Majesty's government, His Majesty's Government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. This was the promise made from the British government to turn Palestine into a home for the Jewish people. Of course, at the time, England did not yet have Palestine. Palestine was a property of the Ottoman Empire from 1517, which by the way was also a jubilee year, um, f- until the end of World War I, when the Ottoman Empire lost the war and the was essentially carved up between Britain and France, between the victorious powers. And Britain took possession of Palestine. So in 1917, when e- England made this promise to give Palestine to the Jewish people as a homeland, they were looking forward to the conquest of the Ottoman Empire, but they had not yet achieved it. That had to wait until, or that took place, the victory, well, okay, uh, World War One only ended in 1918. When did um, Great Britain gain possession of Palestine? Interestingly, the very same day of the Balfour Declaration, remember October 31st, 1917, something else very significant happened. The um, the uh, Axis powers, the the Germans and the uh, the, the German army, and the uh the austrian army and the uh ottoman empire army had uh, fortifications had major defenses in the town of Beersheba it's now well in palestine Beersheva it's a very important town it's associated with uh, all the way back to abraham which we'll get to in a moment so that was where the defenses of the um axis powers were where you know the ottoman empire and germany powers were It was on October 31st, 1917, that General Allenby conquered, against all military odds, Beersheba, and took the fortifications at Beersheba. And that was the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire and German army defending Palestine. So that's really when the walls of Jericho crumbled, to mix metaphors, and uh, Palestine began its fall into the allied Army's hands into um the british and french powers hands was the very same day october 31st 1917 the jubilee year the same day that england promised palestine as a jewish homeland england took possession in a sense of palestine now Bersheva, well maybe that's just a coincidence what happened in beersheva what's the word beersheva mean well we learn about beersheva in genesis 21 Beersheba was where um, the uh, Palestinian, uh, excuse me, the Ph- Philistine king, um, Abimelech, made a covenant with Abraham, acknowledging Abraham's sovereignty, his possess- essentially his possession of the land. So, in fact, Beersheba was the place where the Jews were essentially given the land by the uh, Philistine king, what does the word Beersheba mean? Well, I'll read the passage I'll read genesis twenty one thirty one therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath, in other words, the very name of the place where allen b basically um, uh, began the conquest or 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 established the victory of Britain over Um, the Ottoman Empire for the possession of Palestine, the very place was named the place of the oath, and that oath was the promise to give possession of that place to the Jewish people. And that oath was, of course, uh, repeated or echoed in the Balfour Declaration the very same day when Great Britain swore, in a sense, to give possession of Palestine to the Jewish people. Now, finally, and we've come to the first ha- end of the first half of the show. So, remember, we're not talking only about jubilee years. We're also talking about parshas, about the the uh, the reading in synagogue for that particular week. Well, what was the parsha for that week? It was one which includes Genesis twenty-one thirty-one. In other words, it's it is the section in Genesis, which contains the fact that it was at 'er Beersheba that the oath was made to give the land to Abraham and his descendants. That was, in fact, the reading in every synagogue around the world that very week when it happened, when Allenby took Bersheva and therefore began the conquest of Palestine and when the Balfour Declaration was signed. Finally, the Parshas have a name. The name is usually one of the first words in the um that appear in the Parsha. What was the name of the Parsha for that week? Vayera. Uh what's that mean? It means uh, essentially, and he appeared. Who appeared? It is the passage where, um, uh, I, well, I'll, I'll read it. I'll turn to it very quickly. I'm a little bit over time here. I'm obviously not going to finish, um, get up to Trump. Um, Trump's day this week, but if not, I'll continue next week. Um, okay, the, the, the name of the Parsha for that week was, in fact, um, as I said, and he appeared. And it comes from uh, Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And he, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men stood in front of him. That was, of course, the three angels who appeared to Abraham um, and um, uh, made the promise that, uh, or repeated the promise, to make him the father of a great nation and that Sarah would have a child a year later. You've probably seen the icon of the three angels sitting around the table. Uh, It's a very popular Catholic, uh, probably comes from the Eastern Church, but Catholic icon. Those three angels that appeared to Abraham while the passage says in the Lord appeared to him have always been understood in the Catholic Church as a figure of the Most Holy Trinity. So the name of the Parsha reading for this week was, in fact, a reference to when God, as the Most Holy Trinity, appeared to Abraham. So, again, we have this sense of the revelation of, basically, the revelation of the Most Holy Trinity to the Jews, which is going to come to inaugurate the Second Coming. This we know as Catholics from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. That's paragraph 674 of the New Catechism. The veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews. They will um, see that Jesus was the Messiah. They will come to know God as the most holy trinity, and that will inaugurate the second coming. And, in fact, the name of the Parsha for that week, that very week in 1917, when Israel was sworn to be given to the Jewish people as a homeland by the British Empire, when the British Empire was in a position to take possession of Palestine because they conquered the major defenses of the Ottoman Empire defending Palestine. That was the reading for that week. So, boy, I talk a little bit too fast when I get excited. I'm a little bit over time for the halfway break. So we'll take that short halfway break. I hope it'll only be about two minutes because I have so much to say but with that let's turn to our musical break you're listening to Jesus the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria and your host Roy Shoman we'll be back in a few moments hi well welcome back I've been r- racing forward with this um, you know prophetic uh, well I don't know how to put it this this p- analysis of the founding of the state of Israel in the light of biblical prophecy with respect to the jubilee year and to the uh, uh, scripture reading for that week in synagogues, the Parsha for the week. And I'm going to have to skip a lot in order to finish by the end of uh, the half, the time remaining. But So we were in 1917. We were in October 31st, or we were on October 31st, 1917, the Balfour Declaration and the fall of um to the British Army on the very same day. Bersheva being the well of the oath and the parsha for that week being the reference to Beersheva being the oath sworn to give the land to the Jewish people. Very exciting. We're not quite finished with nineteen seventeen. Because in fact something else happened in um uh in uh ooh, um um in 19 I'm going to skip I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that. I'm gonna skip that for the moment in the interest of time. So 1917 was obviously the jubilee year, extremely significant for the return of the Jews to Israel. The next jubilee year was 50 years later. What's that? That's 1967. Did anything important for the return of the Jews to Israel happen in 1967? Oh, let's see. What happened? Mm, did anything important happen? Oh yeah, 1967, the Six Day War, when Jerusalem returned to the Jewish. The hands of the Jewish people for the first time in almost two thousand years, remember the six day war um, it uh began in some sense or the preliminary steps were in, in may sixty seven Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, amassed an army on the border with Israel and Sinai uh it demanded that the u n peace peacekeeping troops with would withdraw so that there was no buffer zone between him and invading Israel. Uh, Israel then entered into a military pact with Jordan, and by June there were 200,000 Arab troops on Israel's borders, with Nasser screaming to the world, quote, Our basic objective will be the destruction of Israel. He also boasted that it would drive the Jews into the sea and so forth. And this boast and prediction was echoed throughout the um, Arab world, and so Israel... Um, decided it had no choice but to um, launch a preemptive strike. On June 3rd, Israel mobilized all of the men, all of the men in Israel up to the age of 50, mobilized them, in other words, drafted them. They were all subject to compulsory military service until the age of 50, mobilized all the men up to 50 in preparation for launching a preemptive war. Now, what was the Parsha? What was the scripture reading for June 3rd? happened to be a Saturday in 1967. It was the beginning of numbers, which is in which the Lord (laughs) commands that all of the men of all of the tribes of Israel a census be made to number the men available for military service. In other words, it is exactly the same thing Israel did on that day. Count up all of the men who can be used for military service up to the age of 50. Now, um, the, in, 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 in numbers in the Old Testament, it's not explicit up to the na- age of 50. That appears elsewhere in that passage. So you could say that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's certainly a census to count the number of men who can be called into battle, just like Israel did literally, on June 3rd, 1967. So we see again that the Parsha reading is this very direct echo of what's going on with the um, return to Israel. Now, um, the uh, the conquest of Jerusalem, the return of the Jews to taking possession of Jerusalem, happened on when? December, December 9th. Um I'm gonna skip that actually, both in the interest of time and also because uh my notes aren't quite clear enough. Okay, so so um so here we have is uh Jerusalem returning to Israel possession in nineteen sixty seven, another Jubilee year. Um and, but Israel's sovereignty was not yet complete. Israel's sovereignty was not acknowledged by the world at large. In fact, Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem was condemned by the United Nations. I don't know how you want to count it. You can uh, count it uh, up to like 180 times between 1967 and 2013. That's probably not all specifically about Jerusalem, but dozens of those condemnations were specifically condemning uh, Israel's possession of Jerusalem and its claim to establish its capital in Jerusalem. So the world did not acknowledge Israel's right to Jerusalem until when? Oh, my goodness. um, Until 2017. What a coincidence. The next Jubilee year, right? 1867, 1917, 50 years, 1917, Um, 1967, 50 years, 1967, 2017, 50 years. What happened in 2017? Surprise, surprise, surprise. President Trump made uh, made an explicit promise. Basically, President Trump uh, officially recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, made the announcement that it would place the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Um, and, uh, because there's some significance to the words he used, let me read, um, his words that he used when he made his announcement. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. It was 70 years ago that the United States recognized the state of Israel. Ever since then, Israel has made its capital in the city of Jerusalem, um, Today we finally acknowledge the obvious that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Um, that is why I am directing the State Department to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, so, in this, in the next Jubilee year, um, the most powerful country in the world acknowledges Israel's right to have its capital in Jerusalem. Acknowledges Israel's possession of. Jerusalem now um, what was the uh, parsha for the week of December the 6 2017 that parsha deals with the promise well the return of Israel to his homeland to let me be more precise to the return of the pro, the patriarch Jacob to his homeland the restoration of his rights to his homeland. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. It's the return of Israel to its homeland um, was the Parsha for that week. If anyone wants to look it up, it's, um, the Parsha runs from Genesis 32 to Genesis 36. Now, remember that Trump, in his declaration, said, quote, "...it was 70 years ago that the United States recognized the state of Israel." Well, I am going to, maybe I'll skip ahead to another funny point, which is that Trump, in the beginning of his first year as president, um, in fact, let me find the date, March 22nd, so just, what's that, about two months after the inauguration, um, he gave a greeting for the Persian New Year, and he he actually quoted Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was the Babylonian leader who um, returned the Jews to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Okay, let me read the quote from uh, President Trump from uh, again 2017. Cyrus the Great, a leader of the ancient Persian Empire, famously said that freedom, dignity, and wealth together constitute the greatest happiness of humanity if you bequeath all three to your people their love for you will never die on behalf of the american people i wish you freedom dignity and wealth now so here we have president trump si- uh, quoting cyrus the great actually it caused a riot in the evangelical press or the well that's true actually in the theological evangelical press because The Protestants, who are very centered on sacred scripture, are extremely aware that Cyrus is the one who returned the Jews to Israel. So, by Trump quoting Cyrus, it was kind of this huge flag being waved that Trump would support the Jews' right to Israel and would defend the Jews' possession of the land of Israel as a homeland. Now, the um, um, the uh, uh, ooh, okay. Um, let me let me draw out a little bit of this parallel between Trump and si- King Cyrus in nineteen uh, excuse me two thousand seventeen, the first year of Trump's uh, presidency. Uh, Let me begin by reading the passage from Ezra that talks about Cyrus, the king of Persia. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Please note, first of all, it was in the first year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, just like it was in the first year of the presidency of President Trump that the Lord stirred up the spy spirit of Cyrus. One could th- speculate, did the Lord stir up the spirit of Trump to do what he did? Cyrus, the king of Persia, said, the Lord has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, one could say that in the, in, in the designs of divine providence, the Lord, the God of heaven, may trump the president of what's undoubtedly the most powerful kingdom on earth, the most powerful government on earth, that of the United States. And um, the uh, passage in Israel says, he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. And what did Trump do? He um, dedicated himself to building a house at Jerusalem, so to speak, that is putting the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem and therefore putting the seal of the most powerful kingdom on earth behind is Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, one might say Trump was a terrible sinner, at least before he was president, at least as a New York City real estate developer playboy. You know, the Lord isn't going to be using a sinner like him. Let's look at Cyrus for a moment. Uh, we know more about Cyrus from... Um, oh, boy, I'd better find this or else I'm in trouble. We know more about Cyrus from uh, Isaiah... Uh, Here it is, Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and ungird the loins of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Um, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name, I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I gird you, though you do not know me, that men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Twice, the Lord says about Cyrus, I have chosen you, I have lifted you up, I have anointed you in order to... basically returned the Jews to Israel although you do not know me in other words he was not a friend of God he was not in relationship with God nonetheless God called him by name and gave him the anointing for the task he had chosen him for so one could say in response to the accusation that Trump is no uh, servant of the Lord at least wasn't before he was president same, same was true of Cyrus Um and um uh, the uh, um okay um I should say something uh okay okay Trump's name please forgive me for this but Trump's name if the root is German in German the root for the name Trump refers to a drum the German high middle high German word Trumpa for drum in English. The Middle English for trumpet is trumpa, and as an English name, the root of the name trump is trumpet. In the King James Bible, the trumpet used to announce the second coming is the word used in the King James Bible is trump, trump, not trumpet. 1 Corinthians verse 52 in the King James Bible, referring to the second coming, of course. In a moment in the trunclinicus, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6, in the King James Version. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. With the trump of God. Okay, that's the King James English. There's a famous story of somebody who defended uh, the, reading the Bible in English rather than Greek because he said, basically, if the King James Version was good enough for God, it's good enough for me, as though it was written in the King James Version. Take that for what you want. Um, and um, so, uh, oh, and the last, the last little bit, I have about two minutes left, so I'll have to talk fast. Trump's birthday was June 14th, 1946. It was actually the eve of the Sabbath. What was the Parsha for his birthday the Parsha for his birthday was Behalotecha. And um, the the uh, reading for that Parsha is the command that the Lord gave to Moses in Numbers 10 to make silver trumpets to be blown um, and to, be blown, uh, to sound an alarm, to save them from the enemies on the day of their gladness at their appointed feast, at the beginning of the month and for the Jubilee year. So, the, the Parsha for Trump's birthday was, number one, the instructions for making the sacramental trumpets to be used for blowing the announcement of the Jubilee year. And what's the name of that Parsha? It is um, B'chalotecha, which means to go up or to ascend. It's the same root as Aliyah, which means uh, to go up. And Whenever a Jew moves to Israel, he's making aliyah. He's going up to Jerusalem. Whenever a Jew goes to Jerusalem, it's called going up. The verb uses aliyah, to go up to Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's uh, spiritual significance. And uh, you may know from the uh, Psalms, the songs of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent, They're ascent because they refer to going up to Jerusalem. So the um, Parsha for the day that Trump, for for Trump's birth, was a reference to going up to Jerusalem and for making the silver trumpets to announce the jubilee, so there's lots more where that came from. Um, this show was largely plagiarism; was 99.9 percent plagiarism from uh, Jonathan Kahn's who's messianic Jewish rabbi, um, and uh, you can hear him all over on YouTube. Um, uh, and this particular shtick of his, if I may use a Jewish word, he refers to as the Oracle, and the book that he wrote that talks about this is the Oracle. And um, I've just kind of given a fly flyover of it, but I think it's I think it's worth I don't know how to put it, but certainly it is. Uh, I feel for myself, it's worth allowing it to ferment a little bit in my spiritual soul and so i wanted to present it to you too so with that we've come to the end of our time for today's show you've been listening to jesus the promised messiah of judaism on radio maria with me your host roy showman if you want to um listen to this show again or um let, you know, uh, send a link to somebody to listen to the show. It'll be up on my website uh, probably by tomorrow. Salvation is from the dot com. And likewise, uh, up on my uh, podcast. I think it's called Roy showman podcast. I'm not sure. By tomorrow. Uh, and as are, in fact, all of the my Radio Maria shows. So anyway, thank you for joining us today. And I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. For Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria, this is Roy Schoman saying bye for now.